Okay, so getting on to our topic. When talking about Judaism and feminism, the first thing that we have to do if we're going to be fair to ourselves is to define the terms that we're using. Okay, feminism has come to mean different things to different people. Taking what it means as a word, it should mean anything that advances the cause of women, that makes things better for women. Okay, Judaism, again, has come to mean even more things to different people. But I would take it again from its own self-definition in the Torah itself. It says in the Torah that God separated us to be a godly people, okay, a holy people, a nation of priests. So in terms of what Judaism is in essence, it's the way in which we become holy. It's the path. Is this path compatible with the advancement of women is what we have to discuss. As much as possible, I'm going to try to keep the discussion in the framework of the Torah itself, rather than people's opinions of what the Torah says, in order that we see what Judaism actually says and not what people say. So the first place where we would have to look when discussing what does Judaism say about women would be, of course, Parsha Pereshit, the first Parsha in the Torah, where we have the creation of the first woman. Okay, in the text, it begins by saying that God consulted with his angels, right? doesn't use the word he consulted with his angels. He said he spoke to them, okay, and he said, let us make Adam in our image. Okay, um... You could ask, I just said a moment ago, we're going to talk about the creation of woman. Why am I talking about Adam? The reason for this is the text goes on and says, God blessed them and told them, be fruitful, plural. The word paru is plural. And multiply, um, plural. Revu is plural. The Talmud asks concerning this, who was God talking to after Adam was created? Who is the plural? And answers that the original Adam was androgynous had the qualities of both sexes. So therefore, God was speaking to a person who by nature was pluralistic. Now to understand this idea, because this is before God separated Adam into Adam and Chava, into Ish and Isha, man and woman, why would he still refer to this first being plurally? In other words, if, if, if this one person had all of the qualities of a man and a woman, it's still one person not two people. Why be plural? Okay, the deeper side of this is that the very nature of what we'll call male and call female is separate enough that God chose to refer to this person who physically at that point was one in plural. We're going to soon have to talk about what the differences are, what male imagery, male vision of life, male capacity is viewed as, is viewed as being by the Torah and what female capacity view of life, etc. is said to be by the Torah. Now picture this. God consulted with the angels, and we'll have to speak about what that implies in a moment. He says, let's make Adam in our image. Okay, does so. Blesses Adam, and then says it's no good. Loto, what's this all about? I mean, it sounds like a proof that God's Jewish, but, you know, <laughs> critical, you know, whatever else. Okay, but what's this all about? So I'm going to take you back a step. Okay, as I told you initially, God spoke to his angels. What's an angel? Okay, the word angel in Hebrew is malach. The word malach literally means messenger. Okay, so what an angel is are the energies and forces by which God manifests his being, 
the energies that make him apparent to us. So the same way a letter makes the writer of the letter apparent to the one who receives the letter, oftentimes in life we experience God, but it's through the vehicle of something else. The same way the letter isn't the person who wrote the letter. Now to understand this better, there's an interesting Gemara about angels. It says whenever a person does a good deed, they make a good angel. Whenever they do a bad deed, they make a bad angel. Whenever they do a deed that has some good and some bad, they make a crippled angel. Okay, so I always have this picture of me after 120, you know, high to par and They're all limping towards me, but I'm... <laughs> okay, what does this mean? Whenever a person does anything good, they bring good energy into the world. And whenever they do bad, they do the opposite, and of course they often bring mixed messages into the world. I'll give you an example of this. When I was growing up in Brooklyn, the way newspapers were sold was on wooden counters that were outside the candy stores. And they, the newspapers were on these wooden platforms, had a metal bar over them, and there would be a cigar box in which the person was supposed to put the money for the paper. Okay, I don't know who the first person was who stole the first newspaper or who took the whole cigar box or whatever. Suffice to say, this is not how papers are sold in Brooklyn anymore. Okay, so what I would say is the first person who did this, or the tenth person who did this, created several effects simultaneously. The least important effect was the effect he created on the candy store owner. In those days, a nickel was what one paid for a paper. Today, they cost 25 cents. You can't buy much for 25 cents. Right. You can't even buy a bus ride. So the candy store owner's life is not going to be altered enormously by a paper being missing. And the candy store owners did take the change fairly often during the day, even if there was $5 in the cigar box. This wasn't going to change his life. He's the one who suffered the least. Who suffered more? The person who did the stealing. Like all people, the person who did the stealing, no doubt, lived a life of conflict within himself, as we all do. There's what we want to be, and then there's who we are. And there's often a big space between those two addresses that gives us a certain amount of personal pain. That person strengthened the aspect of himself that's like an animal and made that part more accessible. Okay, how long is that going to um, affect him? As long as he's here. Not only that, but it created a situation whereby stealing became part, more part of societal norm. And it was a further step in creating a society in which no one trusts anyone. Which is certainly the direction, I don't know anything about what society is like here amongst Jews, but certainly it appears to be that this is the general state of society as a whole. This distrust doesn't enrich anyone's life. Okay, so what I'm saying is that the, message, the messengers that Hashem sent down have something to do with the messages that we send up. This is the deep meaning of Yaakov's ladder dream where he saw angels rising and other angels coming down. So the first person was made after God consulted with all of the angels, all the possibilities of self-expression that there are. He said, let us make man in that image. Let us give humans every possibility there is for self-expression. For the good, for the bad, everything. Okay, so what's not good? You have a person who spiritually has it all, who physically has it all. God says it's not good. What's not good about this? 
So Rashi gives one answer, and in the Gemara there's a second answer. Rashi says what's not good is the illusory feeling of independence that comes from self-sufficiency. A person who... Is anyone genuinely self-sufficient? No. And certainly no one is independent. In Hebrew there isn't even really a word for independent, the word independence. The word we use now, asma'ut, in modern Hebrew, is in fact taking the word etzem, which means self, and moving it forward grammatically. So asmi is myself, asma is himself, asma'ut is selfness. Okay. The reason why there's no word for independence in classical Hebrew, there are words for freedom, for liberty, but not independence, is because independence isn't a genuine reality. There is no such thing as independence. We idealize independence, and this is a very strong issue when talking about feminism, for several reasons. Why do we tend to idealize independence? Even though intellectually we admit to ourselves that we're all totally dependent. Okay, there are two reasons. One is that dependence implies vulnerability. And the other is that independence takes you off the hook as far as gratitude goes. Okay. God did not want humans to perceive themselves as independent. Why? Because he wanted us to yearn. Rashi says that the ultimization of this ill-perceived sense of independence leads to a situation whereby humans would say, God is the master of the higher world, and who's the master of the lower world? Me. Me personally, even. Okay? The Gemara goes on and says something deeper in some ways. When you ask the big question, right, the big question is always, of course, and what are we here for? That's the big question, right? The purpose of life, yeah. Okay, um, there are many answers that are given. The simplest of the true answers that I've heard was the answer that was given by the Vilna Gon, and what she said, we're here to rectify ourselves and rectify the world. How does he know this? Going back to the text, it says that we're in God's image. This rectification of self and world come through activating God's image within us. Okay, the primary way in which God is observably self-expressed in the world is through the quality of giving. To the point where if you were to ask a small child, what does God do? What would the child say? Hmm? Gives life gives food. If you were to ask a sophisticated intellectual, what does God do? It would probably come down to gives life, gives food. <laughs> of course, the sophisticated intellectual would put it in sophisticated intellectual language, but it would come down to that. If, there are only two kinds of giving. There's genuine giving and illusory giving. Genuine giving is when the giver gives what he or she has to a recipient who needs it. Illusory giving is when the giver gives what he or she wants to give, regardless of the needs of the recipient. What would an example of illusory giving be? Give me an example of that. Excuse me? Ask my kid, right? I've already had enough. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. I don't know if they had this in South Africa. 
In my day, grandmothers tended to make rainbow sweaters. Were they in style here? <laughs> okay, um, I can't even imagine a child purposely selecting a rainbow sweater. <laughs> okay, rainbows, reindeers, they had both of them on them, those teeth. Okay, um, you know, especially since people are only people, so sometimes the pictures were a little, you know, you know, they ran out of dark brown for the legs or something, you know. <laughs> so, um, the giving still has a certain dimension of purity because it's godlike to want to be contributive. But the illusion is that something has been accomplished. So when God separated Adam into two components, Ish and Isha, it was with the purpose of creating the possibility of mutual giving. Now this mutual giving is meant to take place on all planes of what a person is. This takes us to one more philosophical sentence, and then we'll get into more concrete things. What are them anyway? Um, there are three, there are probably more than three, but there are three easily found interpretations of the name Adam. Okay, one is of course the one that people are familiar with, Adama, the earth. Okay, the earth is very interesting in this, that unlike the other three of the four easily observable elements, fire, water, earth, air, earth doesn't move unless you move it. Similarly, people are sometimes moved by something, and the something is meant to be in terms of the divine plan of the soul. Sometimes it is, sometimes it's not. Another idea of what Adam is comes from the phrase Adam el Elyon, the one who could say concerning himself, I'll be similar to he who is most high. The third interpretation is that it's an acrostic for the words Aether, Dam, Mara, ashes, blood, bile. So we're a combination of what's most finite and frail, and we observe that humans are frailer than most animals, together with what's most eternal and most sublime. And men and women are supposed to be contributive on all of those levels. This is not an easy task. Okay. So in order for this to happen is the, the great separation, Ish and Isha. Okay. Now we come into the first Judaic idea. All of this is introductory. Okay. The first Judaic idea is that therefore we acknowledge that men and women are different and that the difference is good. The difference is positive. The difference is the foundation of mutual contribu um, contributive effort. The more a person denies what they have to give, the less likely they are to give it. Another part of this very first assumption is that people are happy when they're actualized. The same way in nature, we observe that all, all animals, for instance, do everything they can do. In other words, you don't have birds that can fly but select not to fly. You know? It's not into it, you know? <laughs> I'm an individual. Okay, I don't want a group identity. Okay, um, I transcend classification, right? You don't have this. Okay, um, you don't have grass that chooses not to photosynthesize, right? Okay, similarly, with humans, we tend to be happy when we are everything that we could possibly be. Okay, so the Torah will see that human happiness is contingent on using everything that we are. Okay, so a person who would conscientiously select to have no sexual identity at all is viewed by Judaism 
as having destroyed to some degree their ability to be contributive and receptive, and to some degree doomed themselves to a lack of actualization. Now why am I throwing in this to some degree business? Where did that come from? In addition to being men and women, what else are we? We're also human. So self-actualization doesn't come exclusively through the expression of one's sexuality, but it does come at least partially thereby. Okay. Let's go back to what happens now with the Great Division. God divides Adam into two segments, but the division doesn't take place up and down, right and left, back and forward. The division is that of the inner part, the rib, and the rest. Inner and outer. Okay, um, it's a very interesting way to divide. In order to understand the enormous significance of our knowing this, because we, we know nothing about how the world came into being from the solar text. We have no idea how grass emerged, we have no idea how plants emerged, nothing. The significance of this is that for human beings, bodies have a unique function. They're meant to express the soul. So everything about the body is significant. Certainly when you're going back to the days of creation, the narration of how things are made is enormously, enormously significant. This is telling us the very core of who we are. Okay, so the idea of inner and outer means that she by her nature is going to be manifest as a human being through innerness. He by his nature is going to be manifest as a human being by his outerness, which I have to explain. Okay, the first thing that I have to explain before I go into the halakhas that reflect this is the nature of power. So when you talk about a person being powerful, what does that really mean? Uh, someone who can control. Okay, so we'll say, for instance, that um, a person is powerless, that they have no control over anything that has to do with their lives. We'll say a person is powerful if they not only control their life, but control the, life of the lives of others, right? Okay, so if you were to ask someone, an average person, whatever that is, who's the most, um, who's the most powerful person in the world today? What are some answers we might get? Hmm? <laughs> what? Mandela, certainly in South Africa, Mandela is very powerful. Okay, and the rest of the world is Clinton. <laughs> and there's also Bill. <laughs> okay, but, um, okay, so, um, okay, so suppose you, um, you went sitting with Clinton about whom I know more than I know about Mandela. Okay, so suppose um, he were to go back to Little Rock, where he was governor for many years. Or at least where he acted like he was governor while she, whatever. But, um, <laughs> but, um, so, suppose you were to interview people in the street, and you would ask them, which person made you the person who you are? Which person affected your life most dramatically? How many people in Little Rock would say Clinton? None. And if you, would broaden, if you would broaden this to the United States and ask people who made you who you are, I'm sure very few people would come down to Clinton also. 
Okay, so what I'm trying to illustrate to you is that Judaically we see that there are two avenues of power. There's the avenue of power whereby people affect people and turn them into being what they are. And the avenue of power that has to do with the external formations of society. Okay. Now to make this whole idea a bit trickier, a, a tricky part of this idea is that, as we said already, in addition to being male and female, we're also human. So it would imply that all men have some degree of what we'll call feminine nature, and all women have some degree of what we'll call male nature. Okay, now we have to talk about Judaism's responses to these things and compare it to the responses of feminism. Okay, first I have to talk to you about the nature of halakha. Halakha means literally what? What does the word mean? Oh, so I heard people say law. The word for law in Hebrew is what? Yeah. What does halakha mean? It means the way. Now this is much deeper than law. The assumptions of law in a secular society is that the individual or the society has its own way, and the function of the law is to prevent that path from being intruded upon by outside forces. Do you understand this? The assumption of halacha is that the Torah itself gives us not only the ability to find a way, but it gives us the way. So I'll illustrate this concretely. In the general society, all laws are negative, basically. For instance, I don't know the traffic laws here. I would imagine there are traffic lights here as there are in other places. I, I haven't seen this on the way here, I must admit. <laughs> I assume there are laws concerning you know, speed. I didn't know the study. But in any case, I'm, okay, so you'll have a law that will say, um, stop at the red, go with the green, right? Wrong. You'll have laws saying, stop at the red. But there'll never be a law saying you have to go with the green. Go seek out a green light in order that you can go. There's never... Okay, why? Because where you want to go, how you want to live your life, in secular society is left to who? To yourself. And the laws that are there are meant, to, are meant to be there to make it possible. Halakha is meant to be the path itself. For those of you who studied philosophy, um, Greek philosophy in any case. You may be familiar with um, Aristotle's golden mean. Then again, for those of you who didn't and don't want to know about this, that's life, I'm going to tell you anyway. <laughs> okay, um, his idea of the golden mean was very similar externally to Rambam's idea of also the golden path, the middle road. He says any, any situation in which one is able to choose what's true and not extreme in any direction is the golden mean and that's the path you should choose. Okay, what didn't Aristotle say? He didn't say where that path will go. That was not interesting to Aristotle. That was left to the individual to determine. In Judaism, Rambam will say almost the same directions. Find truth, avoid extremity, so that you could walk the path of God. Do you understand the enormous difference there? So you could be a more God-like individual. So the aspect of you that you share in common with God will be more expressed so that there'll be resolution of personal conflict and ultimately purpose in living. It's a big difference. Okay, so because of this, halacha is going to be structured different than secular law, in this that there are positive mitzvot as well as negative mitzvot. The halacha is not only going to tell us what not to do, but it's going to tell us what to do. 
In addition to this, the negative laws are not just assumptions on convenience. The negative law, in terms of being effective in getting people going, the negative laws are going to be there to prevent personal self-diminishment. And therefore, they're going to affect areas of life that secular law would never affect. That's how halacha and secular law are different. Here's the areas that they share in common. There's no reason to make a law unless people want to disobey the law. Do you understand what I mean by this? In other words, if, there, if all people intuitively would stop at the red light because it's the right thing to do, or drive no, no faster than the speed limit because that's what's morally correct, then there would be no reason for law. Okay, the assumption behind any law is that people are dualistic in their nature. They want, but they also don't want. I saw a very interesting survey. In the United States, they did a poll asking people whether they approved of traffic laws or not, speed limits, lights, etc. What percentage of the people do you think approved of there being traffic laws? Have a guess. Close to 88%. People were then asked if they broke any traffic laws within the last year. What do you think the percentage there was? <laughs> Even higher. <laughs> Okay, so we want and we don't want at the same time. This is also like the good old diet syndrome. We all know that, right? <laughs> okay, in other words, um, if I were filling out a form, right? So check off only one. Would you rather be thin and athletic, that's choice one, or fat and dumpy, okay? <laughs> Choose only one. I would for sure accept thin and athletic. So who was it who ate every bit of food on the plate? Someone else? No. Okay, okay so, um, so all law is repressive. This is a very important thing to realize when we're discussing this. And from the perspective of Torah, repression is appropriate in terms of allowing for self-diminishment to be prevented, and not only for the convenience of society, but all laws repressive. Okay, now moving this forward. Okay, so men and women are supposed to be different. How are they supposed to be different? She conducts inner life, she conducts outer life. There's more. The Torah also tells us that the woman is meant to be an Azer Kinegdo, which literally means a helper, who's either parallel or opposed to him. The word Kineged means both. And Rashi says it in fact could mean either. If he's worthy, she'll be parallel to him. If he's unworthy, he'll, she'll oppose him. Okay. Um, now here, I think, is the place where feminist people will find the Torah inacceptable. The premises before there, the differences between the sexes are real, are also some things that people will find objectionable. But I'm going to stop here and move over to feminism. Okay. Why does feminism arise as a movement? So again, as we said earlier, people who are not actualized, who are not using all of their abilities and talents, are by and large not happy. Let's go back 250, or even less, 200 years to the shtetl, right? Picture this scene. Bela and Zalman are sitting by the table. Okay? Okay, Zalman says to Bela, 
This is in their one room, you know, with the curtains dividing the room between where the parents sleep and where everything else happens, right? Okay, so the little table is in the parents' room, dining room, living room. Yeah? She says, Bela. And she says, what, Zelman? And she says, are you self-actualized? <laughs> okay. What would she say? <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> okay, but let's say she's feeling romantic that evening. She looks across at him right to his eyes, right? Okay, you know, she, she sees him. There he is, the other side of the, pa the table. His paper sack is in the corner. Okay, um, Zalman, are you self-actualized? <laughs> what would he say? What? <laughs> okay, so given the challenges of that society, people were doing everything they could. There was no question. These are people who got up before Zuan and did tasks of enormous, enormous magnitude, the men as well as the women. Zalman was not a person who spent his day wondering about to be or not to be. Zalman was a person who was schlepping from shtetl to shtetl selling pins, needles, and thread. Right? Okay. Okay, time went on. Okay, the technological revolution took place. Both, so now we're moving up generationally, but I'm going to keep their names Zalman and Bela until we get to our times. Then they'll become Sal and Bell. <laughs> Okay, so, um, okay, so here we are, long time passes, we're in the 40s, okay, let's say right before or right after World War II, either way, forgetting about the Holocaust and all of its consequences, okay, how is Zalman's life different? How is his life different? He has a store, okay? But he's still basically doing the same thing that he did. He's busy all day long. And men those days put in 12-hour days, 16-hour days. You know this from your grandparents. Okay, how was, um, how was Bela's life different? She had a wash... No, she may, she may not have had a washing machine. She probably had a refrigerator. She probably had an iron that you plug in the wall. She probably had a, a stove which is a lot better than what she had before. Okay, she probably had an ice box. Some of you who are older may remember what an ice box is. It's a refrigerator where people would bring the ice to it, okay? And this reduced her workload radically. So her life was beginning to be very different, and the time was getting freed up. Let's move it ahead, and things happen so quickly from that point on. Moving it ahead only another 10 years. Here we are in 1955. Again, his life is very close to what it was. Possibly he's working fewer hours, and certainly he's making more money. Her life is different. By this time, birth control had also become popularized. So odds are, Bela of the 50s will have two children, three children, five children, unlike Bela of the Shtetl. Okay, um... Bela of the 50s not only has an icebox, a stove, electricity, she probably could shop in a supermarket. She probably has heating that comes through other means than her going to the, the coal cellar. Her life is dramatically different, which freed up a lot of time. 
What did women what what did women do with their time in the fifties? All this time that was freed up. Oftentimes they still, because it's the nature of people to want to be active, they filled it up with what I'll call leisure time activity. I have to just share something with you. I have an aunt who, I, do you have Mahjong here in South Africa? Okay, Mahjong is, um, it's, it's like a card game, but instead of cards, they use ivory tiles. Okay, it's like Junarami, but with ivory tiles. Okay, so um, my aunt was an avid Mahjong player. So she used to have her friends come over every afternoon, and they would take out their very, they had very beautiful mahjong sets with, you know, the ivory pieces. It was very pretty. Okay, um, her son, my cousin, once had to write an essay for school about what do my parents do. <laughs> he, he thought playing mahjong was a job. Like <laughs> 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 he didn't even he was little. Just so, you know, my father is um, a contractor, and my mother plays mahjong for a living. <laughs> she works very hard. She's busy all afternoon, every day. She, even when she's not well. <laughs> so many women fill their time up with leisure time activities. The problem is those activities are not very actualizing. They don't use the mind, they don't use the emotions, and they don't use the body. And those are the three things that we have. So this, by the nature of things, slowly created a certain level of discontent. Now, there were women who made other choices. There were women who did charity work. There were women who um, took careers. But there was a minority in those years. Okay, by the time the 60s and 70s rolled around, you had large numbers of women who had no idea of what they're supposed to be doing with their lives to give it meaning. Now, this in the United States was made even more difficult by the fact that many of the middle classes by that point had moved out to the suburbs. That meant everyone lived in their own house as opposed to tenements, apartment buildings. So not only were the women doing things that didn't give an enormous amount of fulfillment all day long, they were doing it alone. Okay. So Saul, now he's Saul, okay, was out in his office all day. And Belle was out in her house in the suburbs, which did not take more than two hours a day to clean. And her children went to school, and there were only three of them. And that's an awful long time for playing mahjong. Okay. So people, of course, there are all sorts of ways to fill time, but they're not actualizing. Okay, so this is the vacuum that feminism came into. I have to tell you the least surprising part of it. The least surprising part of feminism in my eyes is that the early founders were all Jewish. Okay, why? Because it's, the, it's not the nature of Jews to want to do this with their lives. It's very antithetical to what Jewish life is about. So what did they do? And here's where Torah and feminism will part ways. That since being a woman is not fulfilling, what's another possibility? Be a man. Okay. So early feminism, first stage feminism, which is becoming more and more passé, was a movement basically to allow women the freedom not to be themselves, but to be men. Now here's the problem with having the freedom to be something that you aren't. It represses the part of you that wants to be who you are. This is a major problem. 
Now, there's one other problem that has to be stated, because I would imagine this is real in South Africa as well. In addition to the, um, to the enormous time block that was freed up for women, another thing was taking place. The values of Zalman and Bela in the shtetl were not the values of Sal and Bela in the suburbs. The values of, of Zalman and Bela were much closer to what are you in the world for? You're here to fix yourself, you're here to fix the world. The values of the suburbs, at least in the United States, are you're here in the world to make money and have pleasure. Okay, things that men do, what Sal would do in the office all day would bring in money. What Bela would do in her little suburban house did not bring in money. Status went with money. So women also suffered the enormous pain of feeling statusless. To the point where anything feminine was viewed as somehow integrally insignificant, and anything male was viewed as significant. Now because the external society is this way, even in the religious world sometimes I find women apologizing for being women. I've seen people ask women with large families, nine children, ten children, do you work? <laughs> What's the, you know, forget about what the answer is. What does the question mean? You know, do they just sort of be like Topsy and Uncle Tom? I mean, what does that mean? Okay, do you lie, do you lie on the sofa all afternoon and eat sugar-coated almonds? I mean, what does this mean? Okay. What, what this means, of course, is do you earn money or not? And this is something that gives women a feeling not only of not being expressed, but of not being in control and of not having any status. So as I said, the early remedy was to be a man, okay, live in a man's world. This wasn't satisfying to many people for two obvious reasons. Okay, the, the first one, the most obvious reason, is that you can't be what you aren't and be happy. The other reason is more subtle. Um, when I was a teenager, I used to read black publications, what I tell you? <laughs> I was interested in that. So it's a publication called Ebony. So um, at one point, I saw ads for hair straighteners in, in Ebony. Okay, today in the United States, that would be unlikely to happen in a black publication, even though some black people do use hair straighteners. The reason for this is that black self-esteem has risen enough that they aren't spending their time with the hair straighteners and they also use those skin lighteners, which I haven't seen. Okay, they aren't wasting their time with skin lighteners because it's okay to be who you are. Okay, women were not content with first stage feminism, both because they couldn't be men even if they wanted to, and the ones who succeeded often found a certain frustration in this that they still weren't who they wanted to be. Okay, which takes us to second stage feminism, the idealization of the superwoman. So the superwoman is the woman who has it all. She's totally expressed in the man's world, and she's totally expressed in the woman's world. That's the kind of feminism I grew up with. Okay, what's the problem with superwoman feminism? Okay, not only exhausted, but it's not going to happen. Okay, so it's sort of like spending your whole life seeking to meet an impossible goal. It's frustrating, and it's, it is impossible. Okay, in the United States, the decision was made collectively because the government there does represent the people. 
If this is, if it is impossible to be superwoman, then you have to be career woman primarily and anything else secondarily. The workplace does not offer part-time work. The corporate ladder doesn't make any allowance for raising children at all. Okay. Now here's where this gets political on my part, and the ones who pushed through those laws were women who view themselves as feminists. It's the feminist lobby that would not allow two-track work systems, because they saw the liberation of women being contingent not only on adapting a male role, but on also rejecting a female role. Now we'll go back to Judaism. What's the path? The path in Judaism is that there has to be vehicles of self-expression for your feminine side, just as there is for every other side of yourself. And to create those paths, there are going to be negative laws, which are going to be repressive, because all negative laws are repressive, and positive law, which is going to be expressive, because all positive law is expressive. Okay, one more thing has to be thrown into the works before we get into the specific laws. Everything I said until now from Chumash, from the Bible, is from before the sin of Adam and Chava. Before the sin, there was evil in the world because God created humans with the possibility of overcoming and rectifying. If there's nothing to rectify, there's no reason for there to be a world. But it was outside. What do I mean by outside? Um, again, you're driving on the highway. There's, uh, there, are two, there are two road signs. Exit 54, exit 62. You could clearly see what they both are and choose one of them. Similarly, before the sin, it was very clear to people, to Adam and Chava, what they were choosing. They had the ability to choose this or to choose that. They could choose evil. It was very clear. After the sin, evil became part of us, so we don't see clearly. It's part of our minds, it's part of our emotions, and it's part of our bodies. So things are worse and more complicated. Now we can talk about what the laws are. Okay, so again, some of this will be expressive, and again, to purify it and to prevent diminishment, some of it will be repressive. Let's start with mind. What do we view as specifically feminine about the mind? The ability to be understanding and empathetic. This is called Bina. In the text, the verb that's used for the creation of woman is Vayiben, which means literally anti-built, meaning Hashem builds her, but the word Bina is also related to the word Therefore, the Talmud says he gave her an extra measurement of Bina, of understanding. So here's what this doesn't mean. It doesn't mean men have no understanding and women have all the understanding. It means that women have a greater amount of understanding than men. Okay, what are some offshoots of this? Okay, so the first offshoot that you may be familiar with is that women are not rabbis. Now, this is an interesting offshoot of understanding. What? Okay. Okay, the way we use the word rabbi today is usually to mean a communal leader. Someone who speaks before the public, somebody who leads them spiritually. Um, What are some other functions of a rabbi? Teaching. Hmm? Okay. Uh, So somebody finally said it last but not least. I finally heard this way, answering questions in halacha. For the continu- so somebody finally said it last but not least. I finally heard this way answering questions in halacha. Okay. 
So today, that's usually like number 10 on the list or so amongst the other jobs. And in non-Orthodox Judaism, it could be much, much further down on the list. As a matter of fact, it could not be on the list. Okay, um, what well, list? Anyway, but, um, <laughs> okay. So, um, the halakhic definition of rabbi is somebody who answers halakhic shilas. If he also does everything else, that's wonderful. But the primary purpose of there being a rav is, this is what it'll say on the smicha paper. On the good smicha paper, it says, Yoveh, Yoveh, which means he shall surely teach. And what's the next phrase? Yadin, Yadin, he shall surely judge. Okay, in order to judge according to Torah law, the judge is forbidden to judge the person and only permitted to judge the deed. So if you have two um, instances of theft, for instance, one in which the person was really at the end of their tether and had had a terrible childhood and was pushed over the edge by somebody who's very insensitive who was showing off their possessions. What is that in halakha still called? Theft. And that's not, in terms of the stock, that's not any different than somebody who steals just for, for the fun of stealing. Do you understand this? There's no looking at the person. There's looking at the reality. But why do you think, in judging, we're forbidden to look at personal circumstances? Oh, because in the end it will make law totally relativistic as it has in the United States and subjective and also because there's an assumption that we have no right to judge people we don't even try to judge people so we aren't judge the end of the Pesachin isn't you're good, you're bad you're a nice person, you're an, an icky person okay, the, the end is you're obligated to pay the fine and you are not it has to do with obligation Okay, a person who's understanding and empathetic is supposed to develop their ability to always see the person. It's something to be worked upon. Why is it important in a society to have someone who understands humans? Okay, so the premise is you can't build people without understanding. It doesn't work. I'll give you an illustration of this. Um, a number of years ago, there was this... Um, no, you don't have to go. I was going to take you back to something that was distant. Even recently, in the United States, many crimes that are committed are committed by children. Do you know this? Kids of 14, 15. The point where um, I was reading an article about the gun lobby, the lobby of people who, are, who um, will always rally to Congress to prevent there being laws against carrying weapons. Okay, there are 170,000 gun licenses. These are licensed guns. Okay, that are given to children, and I'm using the word children because that's really what they are, between the ages of 15 and 20. They take them to high school. They don't take them to high school to do mitzvot. Okay, that's nobody, okay, and this includes automatic weaponry. This is, okay. Okay, there's something wrong in a society in which that large number of children are violent, or potentially violent. What's wrong? Amongst the things that are wrong is that nobody is spending time and effort building humans. In um, the Sunday supplement of the New York Times two weeks ago, they had an article about this very topic and a solution. Are you ready for the solution? Mm -hmm. Teaching human values 
to be a subspecialty in teachers' college. In other words, they're giving up on the idea of people transmitting values in their homes. It's not going to happen. They want to have a subspecialty of teachers learning for X amount of time, a course in transmitting values. But the Civil Liberties Union immediately protested this for the reasons that you, you just said. Whose values will they be teaching? Who said that those values are, genu are genuine? So what's the solution as of this moment? Don't teach any values. Okay? It's a good solution if you want a society like the one that America is turning out to be. Okay, so... The reason why a woman can't be a rabbi is she's meant to use the empathetic side of herself. She's meant to see the whole picture. She's meant to see the whole person. She's meant to be empathetic with the people who are standing before her rather than detached and subjective. Another thing that's important to understand also is that according to Jewish law, we aren't worried about justice being done. We don't think we can judge people, and we're not worried about justice being done. Could humans do justice? Of course not. Okay, so suppose um, Hitler were to be found living in Brazil, okay? So what would happen next? Hmm? Israel would extradite him. There'd be this big show trial in Jerusalem, and in the end he'd probably be executed. And then could anybody say, okay, now justice has been done? Of course not. Of course not. Even if he would have been found 40, 50 years ago, nobody could say that. Why? Because the enormity of what he did goes beyond human justice. So we aren't worried about this, that we're going to not be just. We're worried about doing what the law demands. This is clear? It's a completely different approach. In addition to not being rabbis, what are some other things that women don't do? Hmm? Women don't witness in court, although in contemporary court situations, by and large, that isn't the case. Okay, in theory, women don't witness, and the reason for this is, again, the purpose of the witness isn't to do anything but to describe the situation, and not anything that goes around the situation. Contemporarily, in court situations, by and large, we don't have formal witnessing, and by and large, women do give testimony. Okay. Um, hmm? Shrita, women, well, actually, in Sephardi communities, women do do shrita, which I think is interesting certainly in Yemenite communities, and certainly with um, small animals such as chickens. Okay, but even according to the opinion that women shouldn't do shkita, what's the opinion that women are incapable of a you, Have you all seen shkita of a chicken? Is it a very complicated affair? No. It's not the complication. What is it? Is that for her to hold the knife steadily and to do it unhesitatingly, Maybe against the part of her nature that she shouldn't be opposing. In other words, could she oppose the nature successfully? Yes. Is it good for anyone? Not necessarily. Okay, what are some other things that women don't do? Laying still in. Okay? And I'll include in laying still in all of the arena of public prayer ritual. Okay, this will include fill in, talus, sitsis, being a chazan, reading from the Torah, being counted in a million. Okay, now, I'm going to depart from our main topic, which is women and feminism, and, you know, like, in the feminine side of it, the feminist side of it, and move on to men. Are you all ready for something radical? <laughs> Anyone here with a recard? 
Men also have a place in Judaism. <laughs> How do you like that? <laughs> I mean, again, this isn't for everyone to hear, but men really do have, you know. So the same way women are actualized for using their specific capacities to contribute to the society and to express themselves, men also have something to contribute that has meaning. As we said, men tend to be more externally self-developed. They tend to define societally as opposed to individually more than women. Hence the Talmud say, says that even a thousand women are never a seaboard, a community. There are always a thousand women. There are always a thousand individuals who look at people individually. This is, we have a third of this, and in this that um, men tend to form little groups and teams. Okay, so there are the sports teams, and then there's the legal teams, and then there's the military teams. They like, they like forming teams. They like wearing uniforms, right? They like group identity. Is there something, even though I've been very patronizing, if there was a man in the audience, I could push him throwing something at me. Okay, but in any case, they're also more aggressive. But, um, okay, um, forming a group identity is an important thing. The same way women individuate and therefore create individuals, men tend to collectivize and therefore determine the life of the collective. If that need to find identity in group is not used in synagogue life, does it go away? No. It ends up invested in what? In things that don't do what we're here for, which is again to rectify oneself and rectify the world. Synagogue life is good for men. It's as it should be. Okay, and I want you to observe something else. In other religions, such as Christianity, in which there isn't a sharp division of men and women running the show in communal life, who attends the services? Women. The reason why men don't attend the services is by and large because they don't feel their place there. You understand this? Okay. Um, it's good for men to have that aspect of public life, and it's not good for women to take it away. Why isn't it good to take away? Hmm? Oh. If we're here to be contributive and helpful, taking away somebody's vehicle of self-actualization is neither contributive nor helpful. In addition to this, when you take away that which is someone else's, one tends to neglect what? That which is one's own. Okay, so this will include all of the things. I'm not even going to deal with them individually because they all fall under this of collective. Or external, such as filling. Okay, now an interesting thing here is that for various reasons, I don't know South Africa well enough to see whether this would be the case here to the same degree. In the United States, when people are not observant, even though they're religious, because there's a difference between religious and observant, they tend to attend the synagogue at least a number of times a year. They may not keep Shabbos, they may not keep kosher, they certainly don't go to the mikvah, but they do go to the synagogue. So for people who attend Reform and Conservative synagogues, the broader conclusion that women have no place in Judaism because the only place that they're familiar with is synagogue life. 
Okay, in fact, if you were to ask somebody, are you from, are you really observant, and they say yes, what would you assume about their behavior? What mitzvah would you assume that that would include? Shabbos, Kashrus, Mikvah, more. Where do those mitzvahs live? At home. You understand this? So the fact that women feel disincluded is because for various reasons that are often not in their control, Judaism has been removed from the home. So of course they don't see women included because they've excluded themselves. It may not be their fault that they've excluded themselves, but they have. Now this is coupled by this, that in the society in which we live, everything masculine is somehow viewed as more important. I had um, a student who sent me a friend of hers. So here I was in my kitchen Friday morning, there's a knock on the door, a woman comes in. I'm a friend of Susie, I'm from California, so I invite her to sit down. So I asked her, what brings you to Israel? So she said, I'm here for two weeks because I decided to explore my Jewish roots more thoroughly. <laughs> and, um, and she told me that she had in fact begun expressing this interest back home to her reformed rabbi. So her, she asked the she on her own initiative, asked this reformed rabbi, what mitzvah do you think I should begin with? I want to do something that will create connection. What mitzvah did the rabbi choose? What mitzvah would you choose? Kashrut is a good place. Shabbos is a good place. The rabbi encouraged her to buy a talus. Okay, which she showed me. She had it in her bag, a very beautiful hand-woven talus, which with the scissors of which were probably puzzled, but that's another story. Okay, but um, now what I want to tell you is that especially young reform rabbis, the rabbi probably didn't know better either. It isn't that the rabbi was the bad guy in the story. What, is, what does she know? Okay, <laughs> okay she's just a well-meaning person with a strong Jewish identity. She doesn't have, and she doesn't have a clue about Shabbos Kashrus or anything from personal experience. Her visual, her her picture of women in Judaism is based on their exclusion from public life. Okay, moving further. Another thing that we observe, not only from what women don't do, well actually, do you have any more things that women don't do that you would want to talk about? Don't say Kaddish, what? I can't hear you. Tom? Tom. Oh, say Tom. Okay, yeah. Okay. Okay. So women don't do the myths that have a strong time bond. Okay, so the idea of time is also, Pam, okay, is also something that has to be um, exploited. It'll come down to this, that women have a lot more authority over what they do with their time and less structure. They don't have to be in the synagogue three times a day. They have to study what they want to study, what they need to progress in life, rather than a rigid um, curricula of studies that would include the whole Talmud. What's that for? So again, the idea is as follows. In building people, you don't need time structures and you don't need external structures. Okay, so the reason, this, the world of divreshuts, which means the world of areas in which you maintain your own authority, does that mean that there are no Jewish values? No, there are values, but you have to put them in place according to your capacity, depending on where you are in life. 
So if a woman chooses to go to the synagogue three times a day, she can. Um, you asked about St. Kaddish. That again has to do with the public life of the synagogue, which is a more complicated issue. If a woman wants to study extensively, she can. Is she obligated to? No. Are there areas of study in which women have been act, um, actively discouraged from? Yes. Why? Because those will be the ones that are more oriented towards detachment. The ones that are more oriented towards attachment are ones that women have been encouraged in. In addition to this, you're probably familiar with all of the modesty laws. What are they for? Okay, so people erroneously think that their exclusive purpose is protection, and therefore, that's a partial purpose, and therefore we'll often say, well, it's his problem, why do I have to change how I dress? Right? Okay, I was just in California. In Los Angeles, they're having a billboard campaign. I was surprised that this was even legal. I couldn't believe what, what I was seeing. They have this law, I don't know. All I could say is that the picture of the name Lucy Lamar. <laughs> this is who you will see on this poster. You know, blonde, buxom, wearing almost nothing. It says above, just her, yeah, and it says Angeline on top, and underneath, there's a phone number. So I thought that, when I saw this, I thought it was a movie. No, you call up and you get her. <laughs> okay. For a call girl. Okay, so, um, and yeah, and see, she has like a whole business with many uh, other women who work for her. So, let's say no one ever calls the number, which is unlikely to be the case in the English. But let's, let's say, okay, but is what she did good for her anyway? You understand the question? Forget about the protective side. She's off somewhere else. You could only reach her by phone, and let's say no one phones. Is what she did good for her? Why not? Because she defined herself in a way that's extremely limiting, exploitable, and leads to repression of her higher self. You could see this? So this is even in a situation in which there's no protection issue. The premise in all of the modesty laws is that they'll give the woman the freedom to be expressed in a way that her better side, her more dignified side, her more eternal side comes forward. Most people have no trouble with the premise of Tzniyas. People have troubles with the halakhas of Tzniyas. You can see this? Okay, so I want to throw um, another premise at you, which is, our sense of um, normal or abnormal is formed by what age? Okay, so in the psychological community there's disagreement, but it's certainly somewhere between the ages of three and seven. Nobody says older than seven. Okay, if we grew up in a society in which women don't dress modestly, will modest dress seem normal to us? No. So forget about normality being on its agenda. It's not going to happen. Not only isn't it going to happen, but if we seek to define modest dress by the norms of society, there's an inherent assumption that society's got it right. Okay, so if women were treated with maximum dignity, if their role was one that they viewed and others viewed as worthy of preservation, if femininity, if femininity didn't need a defense, then you can say, all right, that society seems to be doing okay. If you could look at contemporary society in which women are freely objectified, 
and say, I want to project myself the way that's normal in that society, then there's something wrong with your expectations. In other words, if the Tzniyas laws fit the society we have, then there would be something wrong with the Tzniyas laws. Just as if if you were to have laws against violence, but the, but the result would be a violent society, you would have to say the halakhas have got to be different than this. Another thing about societal normality is that it's always changing. When I went to high school, there was a book that was very popular then by Salinger, Catcher in the Rye, okay, which I wanted to read. So in those days, the way a teenage girl would get Catcher in the Rye would be to go to the bookstore after having put on lipstick and um, to lie about one's age and to get the book, right? Okay, now it's on the reading list. Okay? And it's not the worst book on the reading list. There's much worse than that that's on the reading list. Okay, so I'm not talking about whether censorship is good or censorship is bad. But what I am saying is that what's normal today will not necessarily be normal tomorrow. Okay, to the point that even things that today we say, ah, we live in a fairly moral society without sneers for that oldest halacha. You give me an example of something that you would say society still preserves. Yes. <laughs> okay. so there's still some values that society preserves. What are some values that society still preserves? Right. So in South Africa, the family is still valued very strongly. Could you see where this is true? Could you see where South Africa, at least on some level, is making leaps and bounds and becoming more and more like America? Okay? Is it possible for you to envision a South Africa 20 years down the road in which divorce is normal? It's normal, like it's just as likely to stay married as to not stay married. Okay? Okay, in America, it's just as, it's just as likely for marriage to end in divorce as it is not to end in divorce. But I'm not talking about stigmatization. Stigmatization of a divorce is never a good thing. I'm just talking about normal expectations. So that when the, in the United States, when women marry, they don't necessarily expect it to last. Because it's statistically more likely that it won't. Which, which makes it less easy. <laughs> okay. So if you're looking to society for standards of sneers, don't expect to find much. Another thing that has to be said in this entire discussion, not just with sneers, is the Jews were always different. Okay, the very name Ha'ivri that's given to Abraham, what does that mean? The one from the other side. Okay. Um, Abraham coming from the other side means what? So the Gemara says the whole world was on one side, and he was on the other side. So in terms of how we view our sexuality, our, our capacity for contribution, the value of family, the, the value of modesty, it's not relevant if we're on one side and the world is on the other side. Adraba, even more so, in an era such as our era, preserving is much more important than it ever was before. Okay? Not apologizing is very important. What do I mean by not apologizing? Part of um, what's, what's sort of come in the back door 
is women apologizing for being mothers of families, women apologizing for not being whatever a 24-hour day allows them to be. Um, a rabbi was speaking to a large audience in the United States, and a feminist in his audience got up and said, well, you're there on the podium. Where's your wife? Is she home cooking fish? So um, he answered by saying, no, my wife actually is a professional. So um, she says, what does she do? So she, run, she runs, she's the executive director of a group home for unwanted children, which she runs totally on her own. She has no one above her. Okay, so the woman was satisfied, and then he, his honesty got the better of him. And he said, it's actually my house. <laughs> so someone said, well, what do you mean unwanted children? She says, you don't know our kids. If she didn't want them, nobody would want them. <laughs> Okay, but we've reached a point where it sounds so much better to do one than it does the other. So the way out of this is to stop apologizing. That's enormously important. We have to stop apologizing. How do people apologize? Oh, see, you could be like this and also be like that. You could have, you know, the you could have it all has certainly found its foot in the door with us as well. Okay, it's important for us to let go of it and to be pleased with who we are in order that we can be actualized. Okay, now I'll stop for questions, especially questions on specific laws. Yes, that's an important issue. Okay, the issue is the issue of Aguna. Okay, okay so there are two things that I have to say just by prelude. This isn't my answer, this is just a prelude answer. It's a problem that, for various reasons, is discussed more than it occurs, which is an interesting thing. In Israel, there was, um, you know, the Knesset is always disgusting. That's the nature of the Knesset anyway. But um, the Knesset was just in another phase of discussion, discussing. And one of the left-wing members of the Knesset said, Do you know there are 24,000 Agunos in Israel? Okay, so this made the papers. Okay, one of the, not, not even one of the right-wing religious party members, one of the members of Mizrahi, decided to investigate using a computer in the Ministry of Religions, which is where the divorce papers are filed, to discover how many divorces are actually pending. Now, to narrow this, he said pending for within a period of time, okay? How many do you think they really were? Pending for five years or so. Guess the number. 480. Okay. So there's an agenda here. Okay. Now that doesn't mean that those 480 people are not deserving of solutions. This is what I'm saying. This is not an answer. This is a prelude to an answer. But there's a reason why these exaggerations will take place. The reason why these exaggerations will take place is an agenda to create a situation of divorce by demand, right? Where if either side wants out, they could have out. This is the case in the United States. I don't know what the divorce laws are here. Whether you could have unilateral, could you have unilateral divorce in South Africa? Uh-huh. Okay, whatever. In the United States, a consequence of unilateral divorce has been the following arch-typical divorce situation. It's not she's married to a cruel husband who beats her and gets out. It's that he's around 45, quote, falls in love, unquote, with Lolita, his secretary. Okay? 
who happens to be half his wife's age, leaves her and marries Lolita. Okay? Statistically, that's where unilateral divorces have been going. Who is victimized by this? Women. And I would say in this instance, both women. The wife is a victim and Lolita is also a victim. Okay? So unilateral divorces don't work in terms of preserving women's rights, which is an important thing to notice. Okay, now down to the meat of it. Okay, the laws concerning Aguna are assumptions that in an honest society, divorce will be bilateral. Meaning, if there's truly no love in a marriage, neither side will want to stay married. Okay. By and large, this is the case. When only one side wants out, the rabbanim will not grant a divorce. Now, this isn't only the case where the woman wants out and the man doesn't, but it's also if the man wants out and the woman doesn't. They aren't allowed to force her to receive the gift. So sometimes the problem that one hears of less is the following problem. This is a true story. My husband has a friend who's a carpenter, which in Israel makes good money. It's probably better money there um, relatively than it is here. But it's not like being um, a millionaire industrialist, okay? Married a woman, okay, um, couldn't get on with her. She had no grounds against her. I'm not talking about something in which there are colorful and interesting grounds. He just happened to hate her, okay? If you knew her, you would understand, okay? Okay, she's extraordinarily beautiful. She's very, very difficult, okay? After years so they married after around five years of marriage he could not bear it any longer he could not bear it any longer so he took her to the bathroom for a divorce the Diana asked him if he had grounds he had no grounds so they said sure if she also wants a divorce no problem so she said of course if there's no love in the marriage why stick with it all I want is a divorce and the house and the child, and the car, and the large financial settlement, and then there's no problem. Okay? Basically, the only thing he was able to negotiate her down from was the car. Okay? He ultimately, for financial reasons, had to leave Israel, because he remarried, and there was no way he could meet her financial demands and support a second family. So this is a shoe that's worn on both feet. Now, there is an exception to this. Okay, sometimes the rabbis, who could never force a woman to accept a divorce, could grant a man permission to marry a second wife. Okay, so he's still married to the first wife and still has obligations to support her, etc., etc., so he isn't gaining that much. Okay, when is this sort of permission granted? It's granted in situations where the woman is so, um, you know, out of it mentally, Okay, that, um, that she can't receive a divorce technically. That she, you know, that she doesn't understand what's happening. Okay, however, to get this sort of technical permission to get a second wife, and believe me, not too many women are interested in being somebody else's second wife. Right? Okay, you know, especially imagine if you know, she suddenly feels better that you are whatever she has. You know, she's still there, yeah. Okay, even if many women were interested in being somebody else's second wife, which I can't imagine happening, for this permission to be granted, the court has to get a hundred, one hundred rabbanim who are not all from the same place. They have to come from different cities. 
to investigate the case separately and to agree. Now, I don't know about the rabbinical situation here in South Africa, but in Israel, it's hard for me to imagine a hundred rabbinim agreeing that the sky is blue. Okay, well, so this is, this is there on the books, but in terms of it being a practical solution, it's not a practical solution for anyone, really. Okay, the Aguna problem is only solvable with people who are going to be more straightforward about what's happening to their marriage. In terms of solutions, because people are not straightforward, so even though the halakha say, yes, people should be, the fact is they're not, the Rabbanim are working on solutions towards this. Okay, one solution is making a separate document, not part of the marriage contract, but a separate one, in which they agree that in the event of the dissolution of the marriage, they'll go to a rabbinical court or else, and if not, pay a very large fine, an impossibly large fine. But in terms of wording it so that it's binding and finding courts that will deal with this, this is not a simple thing at all. But it isn't something that's not dealt with. In Israel, where the Rabbanim have more power than they do here, I would imagine in a technical sense, the possibility of putting a man in jail if he won't grant a get, taking away his passport, etc., these are all done. But as I said, usually the whole Aguna thing is just it's just money. It's just like the sides bargaining against each other for settlement. But that's not the only So this is something that there are women like this. It's very rare nowadays for someone to just disappear. You understand? I'm not but saying even in war, even in war, if people don't just disappear, okay? 90% of the disappearances are men who left wherever they are on purpose because they don't want to give their wives the financial settlement. And this takes us back to the negotiating side of it. Okay, no doubt there are some tragedies. Okay, um, but the laws are, are not as simple as one thinks. So I'll give you an example of this. Um, when we were living in the north, the kibbutz, it wasn't the kibbutz, the Moshev Shifafid, it was near us, um, had this tragedy happen. During the Yom Kippur War, um, the, they had an ammunition truck. And they, they're, not, they're not allowed to do this in the army, but they did it for convenience anyway. They had men also sitting on the ammunition. So the truck was hit, and there were, there were no bodies. So technically, this is like, you know, this is a case where there's no body, no clear identity, but for the halakha, this, the people saw who got on the truck was good enough. Okay, so it's very rare for people to disappear unless they want to disappear. It could happen, and I'm not saying that there are no tragedies. Or that there are no recalcitrant husbands or wives who won't give a divorce or take a divorce no matter what. In Israel, there was a famous Yemenite man. He just died this year. They put him in jail, and he was there, I think, for 30 years. Something like that. More even. I don't remember. And... Uh, I mean, talking about cutting your nose to start your face. <laughs> and this is in Israel where a life sentence is 25 years. Okay, he was in longer than a life sentence, but he wouldn't give his life a guess. Okay, but most people are not like that. I remember the day he died, my students came and said, he died. I said, who died? <laughs> yes, yeah, and everyone knew which yes, yeah, we met. <laughs> So even the, the Dakar, okay, so even then there was record as to who actually was on the submarine. So they do have to wait a long amount of time 
to be sure that there were no survivors, to be sure that the submarine wasn't captured. It's a very complicated issue. But it's not, it's not, oh, nobody equals no, you know, like no freedom. It's not as simple as that because there are laws in which various forms of testimony are accepted. It's not always the case that that would be good enough. So with Tefillin, the issue was like this, that um, in ancient times, men wore Tefillin all day long, right? Okay, and there are record of women wearing Tefillin as well. It says, Michal Shaul's daughter wore Tefillin, and that the Chachamim didn't protest. Okay, today, men only, by and large, except for a few, you know, Rosh Steinberg, people on this level, okay, men by and large only wear Tefillin when they daven. The reason for this is that in wearing Tefillin, there's the positive commandment to put them on, but there's also a negative commandment which is not to desecrate God's name. It's considered a desecration to let your mind wander while wearing Tefillin. So therefore, Rabbanon has said, in our times, where Tefillin, except when it's obligatory, is more likely to lead to a sin than to a mitzvah, and therefore they'll say no one should wear Tefillin as, um, as an additional act, only when absolutely obligated. And this would apply to men as well. There's a minority opinion that w- in which they would say men could wear and should wear tefillin all day, but that's such a minority opinion that it's not even worth contending with. And that, what I'm saying with tefillin would hold true with all of the, you know, the few things that women really, really don't do. That it'll always come down to this, what's gained by their doing it isn't worth what's lost by their not doing it. The same would hold true by and large for learning Gemara. It's a joke to say today women don't learn oral law. Every time a woman learns Chumash with Rashi, she's learning oral law. But to learn Gemara in, in the style of the Talmud, which is all analytical, it's 90% halakha and only 10% everything else. This is not going to develop in her what has to be developed, and the loss of that isn't worth the gain of the other. But it's not forbidden. Uh, so it's a, it's a custom, not a halacha. And the custom is this, is based on this, that men have a clearer obligation towards Havdalah in general than women do, even though women also have an obligation. In terms of which is a biblical commandment and which is a rabbinic commandment, there's consensus that for women it's probably only a rabbinic commandment. So because of that, men are favored in making Havdalah, meaning if there's a man available, he should make Havdalah. If there isn't a man available, since according to most women certainly have some degree of obligation, a woman could make Havdalah and drink the Havdalah wine. Then there's the superstition that she'll grow a beard. (laughs) Well, I'll give you... um, an answer to half your question. He's obliged to bring Karnasa. Enough? You show me a man who brings enough. <laughs> it says that's what he signed on the dotted line and in the ketubah. The way it works sociologically now is different than how it ever worked before. Mm-hmm. Kolel is a new thing. 
a hundred years in Europe, a uh, hundred years ago in Europe, no one learned, not no one, very few people learned in Kolo. Okay, the reason why it's the generally accepted practice today that when a young man finishes yeshiva, uh, you know, and gets married at 21, 22, he'll learn another few years, four years, five years, more or less, whatever, is coming from two places. One is that we're in such bad shape. We're in such enormously bad shape. In South Africa, you don't know how bad shape we're in. In the United States, there's a very high assimilation rate in terms of intermarriage. Okay, we're in very bad shape. So anybody who could learn really should learn. And not only should learn, but has to be an exemplary Jew in all regards. And will have to ultimately either teach or give tzedakah so others will. So this is an exceptional situation for our post-Holocaust reality. And it's a morality issue for a person to say, well, I'll just be ordinary. In these times, it's like passing a burning building and saying, look, I'm not a fireman. You understand this? You have no... Today there's a different level of responsibility. In addition to this, because technology has freed up so much time for women, there are women who would want to work out of the house because they don't know what to do with themselves anyway, certainly at the beginning of marriage. So let's say a girl of um, 19 or so, a Jacob girl gets married. She doesn't have children yet, she just got married. What should she do all day? Are we back to Mahjong? You know, like, what did she do? So, there are no, there are no um, kids to take around in the South African equivalent of carpool that I forgot how you call it here. What? Lift schemes. Lift schemes, right? She doesn't have to deal with lift schemes. So, what did she do all day? So, there's no reason rationally why, why in, this, in this world situation, she shouldn't work and let him study. Move it up another three years. Let's say she has children, right? Okay, at this point, if they can get by with whatever the colo gives, plus whatever she could earn part-time, and she wants to, then why not? But the primary responsibility, bottom line, is going to be whose? His. Which is why what you observe 15 years down the line, who's usually the one who's earning the money primarily? He is. You have been listening to Voices from Jerusalem. For a free cassette catalog, write to the Aisha Torah Audio Center, 70 Mishkav Dock Street, Jewish Quarter, Jerusalem, Israel. In the U.S., call toll-free 1-800-VOICES-3. Shalom from Jerusalem.